Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 120 with Matt Lewis on blue lining for red-eye bass. Well, I start every episode by getting a background on my guests and how they got into the outdoors and fishing. So um, just tell me how you got into fly fishing. Um, it's, it's not a quick story. Um, That's fine. <laughs> so, so I grew up in um, South Alabama fishing and hunting a lot, but, you know, not fly fishing. Um, like most kids that primarily warm water fish, you know, bluegill, catfish, that kind of stuff was, was mainly what we fished for. And it wasn't until I moved to Auburn, Alabama, which is about middle of the state on the eastern side, there's a lot more of these, you know, clear water streams that are above the fall line that have a series of rapids and runs and just clear water. It was unlike anything I'd grown up around. And so, of course, you know, you look at the water and you're like, oh, this is trout water. But of course, there's no trout in Alabama. And so you my question was, what lives here? And uh, come to find out, bass live there, here. Um, and so it's water that you would see, you know, out west or anywhere else. If you if you just looked at a picture of the rivers and streams I fish, you would think that you weren't in Alabama. Um, and you would think they're trout waters, but they're, in fact, bass waters. And so I just fell in love with uh, everything about that, the, the wildness of those waters. Um, you know, not many people were doing it, so it was kind of a niche thing and they're native you know it's a native fish that i'm fishing for they're not really stocked or or you know propagated in any sort of sort of unnatural way and so i'm fishing for something that's evolved for you know however many million years um in these waters so that that spoke to me too so so i started fly fishing when i moved to auburn it was very frustrating at first because um i mean like everyone that starts fly fishing, you want to just be able to cast immediately. And I would try to, you know, use my strength to push the line out there, get the fly out there where I wanted it. And then, you know, the result was usually it would go not very far. Um, and so it just took a lot of time and practice. Uh, it probably took me a year or more just casting into farm ponds or, you know, where I basically refused to use the spinning rod as a crutch. Um, so I went all in on the fly which is what I think people have to do and just figured it out. And I haven't, I haven't looked back, haven't touched the spinning rod since. And that was 12 years ago. So it's been a lot of fun. 
And was it difficult transitioning from like far po- farm pond to these bass? I know we're going to be focusing mostly on red eye bass. Um, I don't know if you have other species as well. You said bass, but do you mean specifically red eye or yeah, do you have small mouths, large mouths? Yeah. So, I mean, I lived in North Alabama for a while um, and the main bass up there are uh, small mouth bass. That's the mainstream fish. So, I mean, some of that. The red eye bass I didn't discover until I moved to uh, Birmingham right in the middle of the state. And <clears throat> I'd spent most of my time either fishing for smallmouth in North Alabama or traveling to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park doing backcountry brook trout. And one of my friends told me, you know, as much as you like smallmouth and brook trout, I can't believe you haven't fished for red-eye bass because it's like if you were to somehow make a hybrid of the two, that's what you have. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And so I tried it. And the first one I caught, I mean, it was just an absolutely beautiful fish. Um, much like brook trout, they don't get very big. They are very colorful. And it's just not what I'm used to seeing in the bass world. And so it just really resonated with me because it kind of combined what I loved about backcountry brook trout fishing, but the, um, you know, kind of the stamina and the fight and the aggression of smallmouth bass. And so you really kind of have the best of both worlds with, with red eye bass. Yeah, it's kind of the impression I got. I was doing just a little like reading about them online before we got on here. And it did strike me as kind of like a backcountry fish in more so than other bass species. Not that you can't find a smallmouth in kind of a remote area, but I think when people think of bass, um, particularly largemouth bass, they're thinking about lakes and boats and, ex- you know, expensive mm-hmm. gear and all this stuff. And um, even smallmouths, I think of bigger, more easily accessed rivers, uh, not, you know, someone hiking five miles back and finding this remote middle of nowhere area. But when I was looking at these red eye bass, it, it, that's kind of what it reminded me of is, is almost like blue lining out here in the mountains, but for bass, which was, I think yeah. like you, I would be very attracted to that. Yeah. I think for people that are into um, like cutthroat trout and brook trout, those are two species of trout that would be a really easy transition to go after red eye bass. I mean, they, they hold in similar, you know, areas of the water, uh, of the river streams. You know, they like those current teams. They like to be around structure. Um, and they're just super aggressive like those fish too. So there's not a lot of, you know, there's, there's not a lot of selectivity in picking out the right shade of yellow for your fly. I mean, it's <laughs> like if you throw it on the water, they're going to hit it. It doesn't matter if it's a bare hook, they'd probably hit it. And there's something just kind of freeing about pursuing a fish like that. But I mean, I, I certainly like to match wits with fish sometimes, but there's other times where, you know, catching a fish is just kind of the um, icing on the cake of the overall experience of just being immersed into a landscape like that and interacting with it by catching fish that live there and are native there. And um, yeah, it's just, it's been a really unique and special experience. And I've tried my best to, you know, raise awareness for that um, because there's just so much we don't know about those fish still. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. When you say raise awareness, um, are they like threatened in any way? I know they have a, a fairly small native range. Is that you know under threat by anything, or are they doing fairly well? Um, it's it's certainly river specific. So some river systems, um, red eye bass are, are doing relatively well. There's not a lot of development um, in those like tributary streams or along the riparian areas of those tributary streams where they live because it's national forest land or something you know something like that. And so their their habitat is still mostly intact, but there are other areas um, in Alabama where there's been a lot of disturbance to the habitat, whether it was you know historical coal mining or um, you know agricultural pollution, nutrient pollution, things like that, chicken waste runoff. Um, I mean, you you name it with that, you know erosion due to just clear cutting everything to make way for farmland, and then all that sediment just flows into the stream and buries the shoals. Um, that those fish require. So there's there's a lot of issues around habitat, just like a lot of things. Um, and there's some instances where some non-native bass have been stocked on top of native red-eye bass. Um, and so you have kind of the, the confounding effects of a non-native introduction on top of some of the habitat issues. And there's a couple river systems, so like the Chattahoochee River, um, that's the border between Georgia and Alabama. The upper Chattahoochee um, is a, a native red-eye bass area, and there's been almost any kind of bass you can think of stocked into the Chattahoochee River system. And so they have 
hybridized with the native red eye bass to a point where you know there's very few pure red eye bass left, and then you also have you know that the habitat issues that is, is kind of compounding on top of the other issues. And so there's certain areas where yes, this situation is very dire, and so I've I've felt this urge to champion that because you know I, I don't want to hate on trout because there's a lot of trout I like, but there's so much done for trout. They have so many friends across the U.S. And, and in most cases, it's where, you know, those trout aren't native. So, you know, specifically rainbow and brown trout, all the stuff that goes on around them. And there's very few places, well, no places in the U.S. where brown trout are native, but those rainbows, you know, on the Pacific coast. And so it's, I, I want to see that same kind of fervor and passion for warm water species because I feel like everyone just assumes like, oh, they're doing fine. There's bass everywhere. You know, and we now know there's actually a lot of different species of bass, and some of them have um, limited native ranges. And that in and of itself is already kind of, you know, a tough thing to navigate because once they're gone from that one little area, they're gone forever. And so really just trying to wait, raise awareness for the fact that there's there's a lot of diversity within the black bass genus, and there's a lot of issues around, you know, their habitat and water systems that they depend on to live, whether it's introduction of non-native species or, or habitat destruction, or in some cases, both. Is hybridization the main threat from other black bass species, or is it also like out-competing them just as a smaller bass? I'm picturing them maybe not doing as well, but I don't know if maybe they also occupy like a slightly different niche, um, eating different things or, or whatever. So like, is, is hybridization the main problem, or is it also just straight-up competition? We don't really, I mean, know for sure. So there's areas where where red eye bass <clears throat> are native and they've had some non-native bass introduced to those water systems. And in those cases, hybridization has been shown to be the the, the primary aggressor, so to speak, in, in causing those population declines. The interesting thing, and a lot of my research centered around this, in the Mobile Basin, so here in Alabama, you have four different species of red-eye bass that are all native, each to a certain river system. And then you have a couple species of, you know, more habitat generalist type bass, um, which are called Alabama bass. And they look similar to spotted bass, but they're a unique species as well. And they occupy the same river systems, but uh, historically, at least to our, the best of our knowledge, there's not a lot of surveys to go back and look at, which is part of the problem. There seems to be some sort of um, like habitat partitioning and and you know prey partitioning and things like that, so so they don't you know compete with one another. And so red eye bass are typically in the upper reaches of the tributary stream, so they're in those smaller waters high up. And the Alabama bass are typically in the you know middle to larger river systems, and and because some of those have been dammed to create reservoirs in those reservoir systems as well. And what we what I hypothesize is happening in some cases is that as the habitat is degraded in some of those tributary streams where, where red eye bass kind of has a stronghold, it you know one side of it doesn't favor their existence because they are a habitat specialist. They can't they can't deal with a lot of disturbance and, and degradation. And so you already have you know kind of one strike against their persistence, and then. As the habitat degrades, you allow those generalist species like Alabama bass to move further up into those river systems than maybe they normally would. And so I think in those cases, hybridization is is secondary to habitat degradation, but we don't have the data that really show that yet. We're doing some modeling right now with a lot of my genetic data to look at, you know, to see what what factors may be driving or facilitating hybridization between these two native species, but we hypothesize that it's habitat disturbance driven. And you mentioned there are multiple species. Those are are those true species, and red eye is kind of more of a general category, or are they like subspecies of the red eye bass species? No, it's yeah, it's, it's really confusing, and and I can tell you just from someone that's been working in that realm, trying to publish papers, um, you know, no one can agree on what to call them. And so, until until recently, um, so when I first started working on them, there was a paper in 2013 out of Auburn University, where where I am, where um, they formally split with species descriptions what was 
what started out as just red eye bass, and there's just red eye bass in this stream, and this stream, and this stream. Well, they actually did a, a large study looking at some morphological characteristics, so fin coloration, blotch patterns, and scale counts, and all those different things, as well as some small scale genetic work. Um, and they actually formally split uh, what was one species into to five different species in that paper, each endemic to a certain river system. And there was a lot of doubt in the fisheries world because, I mean, this is a time when there's just this explosion of species descriptions because, and in part because of the advent and accessibility of genetic techniques that allow us to look deeper than we've ever looked before. And so we can see at really fine scale levels, you know, how these different species or populations are related or not related. And there was a lot of support that these were, in fact, different species. However, because they only used, you know, a, a very small genetic component in that description is mostly morphological, and there's a lot of overlap in those morphological characteristics. So, for instance, if you say red-eye bass from the Coosa River system have, um, you know, eight vertical blotch, blotches along their flank, but red-eye bass from the Talapusa River system have eight to ten. You know, then there's some overlap, and so it's like, is that really diagnostic? And so um, a few years went by, and there were a couple other studies that looked uh, at a similar scale, but also a lot deeper with genetic techniques and genomic techniques. And um, most recently, there was a paper out of Yale University that came out in 2022, and this was um, with uh, Tom Neer's group there. They do a lot of really cool phylogenomic type, you know, relationships and things. The people like me like to nerd out on, um, but they confirm what we what we suspected that in fact there's enough difference genetically coupled with those morphological differences within red eye bass to merit uh, species status. And so what I tell people is if, if you believe that a large mouth is different than a small mouth, then you have to also accept that these red eye bass are different species because it's it's that level of difference with their genetics coupled with their morphology. So uh, American Fishery Society just recently accepted those uh, species descriptions finally, formally. So now it's kind of like official. And so I, I hope we put that to bed at this point. But it's different than cutthroat trout, which are usually classified as different subspecies. These are, in fact, different species. Um, so that's something I try to make clear, too. And what are what are the species called? So... They're named after the river systems that they belong to. Oh, okay. So in Alabama, you have the Coosa River. They're called the Coosa Bass. And you have the Tallapoosa River, Tallapoosa Bass, the Warrior River, Warrior Bass, Cahaba River, Cahaba Bass. And then the Chattahoochee that I was telling you about in Georgia, North Georgia, they're called Chattahoochee Bass. And then the Altamaha River in Georgia, is uh, they're called Altamaha Bass. And then the only one that's not named after the river system where they belong is the Bartram's bass, which are um, endemic to the Savannah River system on the you know, border of South Carolina and Georgia. And in many of these river systems, I mean, these fish, again, are not in the main river channel. Typically, they're, they're kind of restricted to those upper tributaries. In some cases, you will see like the Tallapoosa, certain stretches, you can catch a lot of red-eye bass there. Uh, but But typically, these fish are kind of you know, in the upper tributary systems, the smaller streams is where they really, you know. Now, is red-eye bass as a group, is that more of a colloquial thing just because at one point they were thought to be the same? Or are these species actually, you know, more related to each other than they are to say something like a largemouth or smallmouth? You gave the example of, you know, if you think a smallmouth is different than a largemouth and these are just as different, but are they more similar to each other than they are to say a spotted bass or a largemouth or a smallmouth, or are they are they so distinct that they're just kind of like they shouldn't even be called a grouped thing because they're so different? No, it's a little bit of both. I think that it's more colloquial because they were all formally considered red eye bass, and so then for the longest time we had this what we referred to as red eye bass was kind of this umbrella term for what we call the red eye bass clade or the the red eye basses collectively, you know. And because it was also hard, because the names weren't accepted uh, officially, so it was kind of it was hard to know like what do we call these things? And so typically we just refer to them as red eye bass from you know, this river system or whatever. But there's a little bit of both. So there's some um, there's some morphological distinctions 
that, I mean, I can look at a red-eye bass and tell you what river system it's from, but I've looked at thousands of red-eye bass um, from multiple river systems, so I'm, a, I'm an oddball there. But there are certain attributes that red, all the red-eye basses have in common. So they have this little like eye crescent on the back half of their upper eye, and it's usually like a teal blue or, or, or blue color. It's almost like a fancy you know, eyeliner or something is what we like to joke about. And most of them have white edges on the upper and lower tail fin margins. And then aside from that, I mean, there's some some coloration differences in the fins between different species, some blotch pattern differences and things like that. But so there's some things that are common, but genetically, um, some of them are more closely related to other bass than they are each other. And that could be an artifact of, you know, geological divergence so when when these fish actually you know some of the drainage where they are native split off and were formed at different times and so some of those species evolved before others and so there's they've had more time to differentiate so there's there's a genetic component to that and also because there is so much hybridization sometimes it's hard to suss out when you're looking at relatedness you know are you really working with pure individuals or are you looking at individuals that have some degree of hybridization so it looks like they're related but they're not really you know and i think that's something we'll fine-tune as we go deeper and deeper but we usually use um what's referred to as the the gdi or the genealogical divergence index it's just a, a number that we use that we can quantify how closely related species are or how different they are and there's you know certain thresholds where like above this you know, that species status difference. Um, and, and they all meet that criteria. So to answer your question, I guess there's a little bit of both. And you may have inadvertently answered my last question kind of on the, the differences in the species by saying that you're an oddball for being able to tell the difference. Like it, if an angler goes out and fishes these different river systems, will the, will the average person be able to tell the difference between one or the other? Like I think about cutthroat out here and it, you know, I usually can tell you what kind of cutthroat I'm catching because I looked up ahead of time what kind of cutthroat are here, not because I'm actually looking at it and being like, well, the spots are, you know, in this particular arrangement. So therefore it's a whatever. I just have to kind of know that like, can people tell these apart visually for the most part if they're not experts like you? No, um, I think some people struggle. I mean, people are getting better at it. As there's there's more information that's out there on how to tell the difference between these species and certain characteristics that are you know really diagnostic that um, people can kind of key in on. But you know, when you have issues like hybridization, especially the levels of hybridization that we're seeing, you know, that really confounds identification because the hybrids will have you know, intermediate characteristics sometimes of both parental species. And so it's like, wow, this kind of looks like a red eye, but it also kind of looks like an Alabama bass. And so it, it can get really confusing. And then you can also have a hybrid that has back crossed with one of the parent species. And so it may look totally like one of the parent species, but it is in fact, you know, 25%, you know, the other species as well. And so we're still trying to really understand what that means, you know, because typically with natural, with, with species that have co-evolved in the same systems or they're, they're both native, you don't see a lot of hybridization. You know, there's, there's certain species, species isolating mechanisms, you know, whether it's reproduction periods that differ or habitat differences, things like that. So there's not a lot of overlap to avoid those kind of things. But hybridization is also one way in which, you know, gene flow occurs. And maybe there's a, a certain allele that's beneficial that those fish might be able to accumulate. I mean, you think about like climate change, you know, Alabama bass are more tolerant of general conditions. So they're, they're more tolerant to warmer water, whereas red eye are really a cooler water fish. And so... You know, there's there's all these ideas that I have. That like maybe maybe that's part of it too. You know, uh, but it's really hard to suss that out with the data that we have now. Um, but those are things that I hope to kind of continue to look at um, to see what role that plays. But um, I'm trying to. I feel like I didn't answer your question again. I went off on another tangent. No, that's fine. I think you did. I mean, okay. it, it sounds like like visually. Most people are not going to go out and see like very obvious differences between well, them. Like yes. there, there are some subtle differences, but 
for the average right. person, it's more, it's more on the genetic side than it is on very distinguishing characteristics. Yeah, and, and I, I do tell people to, you know, if you are fishing in the Cahaba River system, I mean, nine times out of ten, you're catching a Cahaba, well, probably more than that, you're catching a Cahaba bass. Because as far as we know, these fish haven't really been moved around. Like, Coosa red-eye bass have not been put in the Tallapoosa River system or whatever. So they're they're separated by you know, by these drainages um, without any connectivity. And that's part of how they've evolved into these different species. And so there's no connectivity now where they can, you know, where you can catch a Coosa bass in Tallapoosa territory. Even though the Coosa River does um, merge with the Tallapoosa River in Montgomery, which is south of here, to form the Alabama River. But those fish, I mean, that's like coastal plain, you know, uh, deep, slow, turbid water. I mean, this is not the kind of habitat they would go into. So that that habitat, you know, change kind of keeps them up into the, the tributaries. But the one thing I did want to mention is there are people that still catch smallmouth and refer to them as red eye bass because the smallmouth will have a red eye. Um, so there's there's no doubt that the name red eye bass has been really confusing because all bass can have red eyes. It's it's more of a like temperature and stress artifact. So. You know, people will catch a small, small mouth and it has red eyes. And they're like, oh, that's one of those red eye bass, even though it's like nowhere around where a red eye bass would be. And then there's other cases where people catch a red eye, but it doesn't have a red eye. And so they're like, well, I don't think it's a red eye, but like everything else about it looks like a red eye. And it, it does have a red eye. It's just they can't see it sometimes because it's dark, a dark red eye. Or you have people that, um, um, this is, this is the thing I hate the most. And I try to be nice about it, but there's people constantly that confuse what we call rock bass. So it's a panfish and it's commonly called a red eye. So when I tell people that I like to fly fish for red eye bass, they're always like, oh yeah. You know, there's people like in Arkansas or, you know, Virginia or wherever where red eye bass do not exist. And they're like, oh yeah, I like catching those. We call them rock bass or goggle eye or something. I'm like, no, no, no. It's totally different thing like those are panfish these are bass and they they don't you know so the the naming has created a lot of confusion and so because of people confusing a panfish with a bass species and other bass species with that bass species that's why i say i don't have a lot of confidence they can tell within the red eye bass species like which is different from the other unless they've been doing it for a while yeah, I've actually wondered that. Um, I grew up catching those rock bass, and I wasn't sure if they were, you know, I don't, I don't really know what makes a true bass. Um, I guess most people, when they're talking about bass, are talking about black bass of some right. variety. I don't know if a rock bass falls into that, but yeah, I always thought of them almost looking more like crappies than anything from mm-hmm. the from the black basses. But another thing that you mentioned that I have, I guess, wondered about but never knew the answer to was why some bass have red eyes and some don't because I grew up catching smallmouths too and some of them would have kind of just a big black, almost looks like a marble eye and then others would have that really mm-hmm. vivid red eye. What did you say causes the difference between those? So two factors, um, stress and temperature and sometimes the two are related but but those, I mean, we've pulled fish out of the water that um, in the water had a, a very vibrant red eye and then like within seconds of taking them out of the water, it's like it's hard to tell that it was a red eye. I mean, it's still there. It just got really dark. And so if you get it like in the certain, you know, sunlight, you can see that shade of red still there. You just have to know that you're looking for it, I guess. Because most people wouldn't, you know, go to that extreme. They're like, oh, wow, this doesn't have red eyes. Um, so, yeah, that can, you can see that with all types of panfish um, as well as bass. So you'll see, uh, you know, rock bass, um, certain species of like long ear sunfish red-breasted sunfish. So a lot of those different sunfish will, will also change their eye color based on temperature and stress. And is, does stress lead to a red eye or to a not red eye? Um, I don't know. I think it leads to a not red eye, but I don't know that we've really quantified that. That's just like, I, I usually see it red in the water and when I take them out, it's not red anymore. So I'm assuming that because I'm handling them and you know whatever, that they're probably more stressed than when they were in the water. Sure. So that's my, you know, that's my take on it, but I I don't know for sure.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Well, um, moving on a little bit to the the fishing for them, I, I want to start with you know where where they're found because, like we talked about before, I feel like this blue lining for for you know small bass is not uh, a very common thing. Uh, how are you finding w- where these fish are? It sounds like they're kind of limited in their in their range, each species, because it's kind of limited to a, a specific river system. But um, do they spread out amongst the tributaries up at the top? And and if they do, how do you go about locating you know where where they're hanging out? Yeah, so um, that's a good question because in some of the river systems, some of those tributaries might have at one point in history had red-eye bass, but some are, are now void. And we don't really know because, again, we don't have that baseline data. There are some historical uh, accounts where people have looked in certain river systems and, and collected. They have data on collecting red-eye bass from there. And then when we go back now or you know five years ago even, we don't collect any. And those are also streams that have a high level of disturbance. And so that's kind of another reason we think disturbance is driving the decline in population in some of these systems. But then typically in all these water systems, I tell people you're going to, you have to look for flow. I mean, flow is paramount. So like if it's frog water, lily pads, things like that, like that's largemouth water. That's not where you're going to find red eye bass. Um, they really are in those you know, very rocky cobblestone, broken bedrock type streams. Most of them are, you know, 12, 14 feet wide, maybe. So really small, um, usually good elevation. So you've got those like waterfall plunge pools, run, ripple pool, you know, typical like stream habitat. So you've got good oxygenation, um, low turbidity. So like the water needs to be clear. If it does rain, it needs to clear quickly. Um, if it stays turbid for a while, that's not going to be a typically a good red eye um, stream. And so that's the main things I look for. So there has to be rock, and that can be, you know, like I said, cobblestone bottom. Um, also, like just big, long shoal type complexes where you have a lot of bedrock ledges and crevices and you know things like that. Where, where the fish can hide because that you know they're like all bass they're ambush predators so they they orient the structure in order to ambush their prey um which like all bass they're opportunistic so crayfish um a lot of topwater insects both terrestrial and aquatic um are high on their uh preference list um you know small bait fish things like that so they they're not picky eaters but they will orient near structure and flow um, that's the two things I look for. Now, you weren't kidding when you d- described them as kind of a hybrid between a, a smallmouth and a brook trout because you're like, they eat crayfish, they also eat, you know, insects and things. And not that a smallmouth couldn't eat an insect, but I, their diet is primarily things that have a little bit more meat on them. Um, oh, yeah. Whereas, a, you know, a brook trout's going to be almost entirely little buggy, leggy things. Uh, mm-hmm. So what you're describing does really sound halfway between them. What kinds of flies are you throwing for them? So I get made fun of a lot because um, almost to a fault... I refuse to throw anything but like topwater poppers. So like bass popper, because I just, I'm like a topwater junkie. I like to see the explosion on top. Um, and so if I have my way, I'm always starting with topwater. And um, I like to use any kind of cork or foam, you know, attractor type fly. It could be a popper. It can be a grasshopper imitation, anything on top, I mean, they'll eat trout flies, caddis flies, whatever. They they're not picky, um, but I like poppers because I can see the popper really well. So usually, like chartreuse or white or this kind of like damsel blue, I I can see the popper really well in the water, so I can follow it. Whether if I'm drifting it, because I don't 
oddly enough, even though I like fishing poppers, I don't pop them a whole lot. It's, it's almost like a dead drift is what I typically do. But I just like the poppers because of their profile and their visibility. And the, the fish, because they're so aggressive, I mean, you will know within the first like second of your fly hitting the water if there's a red-eye bass there or not because they, they don't they don't think about it. They don't like wait and look at it. I mean, it's just like immediate. And it, it scares you sometimes because you throw in something just explodes on your fly. And so that's what I like to do. Um, I have some friends that, you know, fish exclusively crayfish patterns or, um, you know, small streamers, little mini or micro game changer type thing. I mean, like I, I really and truly don't think that it matters. It's whatever you're confident with, which is, I, I think, just a really good starter fish for a lot of people that are, you know, learning to fly fish because there's not a lot to figure out. You know, you can have a handful of poppers some eight pound monos, tip it and just go like, you don't need all the other stuff. So it's kind of freeing in a way too. And then I like to, my favorite rod is like a seven, six, three weight. I like glass rods. So I lean more toward that way, but I do have some graphite rods as well. And that's for like the small streams. If I do fish some of the larger river systems, like the Tallapoosa river, where they're, they're in the main river system and some of those shoal complexes where I can also catch a, you know, five or six pound Alabama bass. I'll use a five weight. I typically don't use a six, but I'll use a five weight just to make it a little bit more fun if I do catch a red eye versus an Alabama bass. But, um, but yeah, there's not a lot of consideration uh, into gear, things like that. It's, uh, and I wet weighed. Um, so I don't, you know, not having to worry about waders. Summers in Alabama are very hot and humid. So being, you know, standing in, 65 degree water feels nice um so it's actually a really a fun aspect to that type of fishing is, is wading in those streams so yeah that's what i typically do are you often seeing them before you catch them or like is it sight fishing at all are they are they rising and stuff in between casts or is it more of a you go and you take a cast and then and then one reveals itself to you when it takes your fly it depends on the day and the water i mean there's some waters that you know just in my approach of, of getting to the water, I have the the added benefit of, of elevation, being able to look down to the water. And, and so I can see fish cruising sometimes. And so I know where they are. So when I get down there, I can kind of do a stealthy approach and, and make it a cast. And, you know, if everything goes right, they're going to eat it. I fish for them so much. I mean, I almost exclusively fish for these fish. And so I've logged so many hours over the last decade almost. Um, of, of just fishing for them in all the different species. And so I kind of know where they're going to be. And so my casts are very you know, high probability type areas. And so sometimes it's just, I cast into a likely area and I, I catch a fish. Um, but they're, they're finicky enough to where, you know, the, the water they live in is really clear. And so they're very cognizant of, you know, overhead predators. There's a lot of kingfishers. There's a lot of uh, ospreys, eagles, you know, all kind of stuff that that eat them. Otters in some cases. And so they're 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 aggressive, but they're not stupid. And so you have to have a stealthy approach in order to catch these fish. Like you can't just go stand over the hole and cast a popper and get the same reaction strike. Um, you have to cast from 30 feet back into that pool where you're you know down in elevation so you're casting up to that plunge pool very similar to brook trout fishing um and so uh, sometimes like i said you know, it just depends on how i approach the stream if i have that that benefit of an elevated you know lookout where i can see where i'm going to be going before i get there i'll try to pick out fish and target fish and uh, but just remember that the water is, is so clear they can see you really well and they're tuned into that kind of movement and things that don't look normal and so I tell people, um, you know, that's not the type of fishing where you want to wear your like, you know, bright yellow, bright blue fishing shirts. Like I like to use earth tone colors. So like khakis, olive greens, gray, you know, to kind of blend in with the rocks and the trees and to, to create as little, you know, obvious disturbance as possible. Gotcha. I know you mentioned that they're not in every tributary that they could be in because of, you know, disturbances and things, but where they are, are there a lot of them? Or is it like, you know, I blew up this hole and now I've got to walk a quarter mile till I find another fish. Is it kind of like every little hole, like brook trout? Yes. Um, they're, I mean, they're pretty prevalent where they do exist. 
So you'll catch one, you know, you may catch one in a, a pool, you may catch one in a run, you, you know, it's like, I just, you know, just like brook trout fishing, when I'm fishing for these, I always like to go upstream so that I'm kind of approaching from behind the fish because they're usually facing in the current, much like trout do. And, um, you know, I, I hit the obvious places first. So I'll hit the, the tail out of the pool before I just cast my line over the entire pool to get to the head of the pool. And, you know, sometimes you'll catch one in the tail of the pool, then you'll catch one in the head of the pool. Some pools you'll come to and you don't catch anything and you're like, well, is there a fish here or did I screw it up? And usually I screwed it up because as I walk through it, I see a fish dart out and, you know, run for cover. Um, so that, you know, you do when you when you get into them, you typically, I mean, it's going to be a good day. There's, there's very few times where it's like, I'm just going to catch one or two. Um, it's something you'll catch a lot of. And how big are these river systems that they're in? Are we talking like a stem and a handful of tributaries? Or are we talking like you still haven't run out of places to go explore and, and check out where these exist? Um, it depends on the river system. So some of the river systems just, you know, themselves are larger than the others. So like the Coosa River system is like probably two times or more bigger than the Cahaba River system. So there's just so much more area. There's so many more tributaries. And most of it is, you know, above the fall line. So there's all those tributaries have red-eye bass in them. Um, and the Cahaba, um, you'll, you have some streams that, uh, again, for whatever reason, historically had red-eye bass, but, but don't anymore. But typically, I mean, just based on the sampling that we did for my project. So the Tallapoosa River, we sampled, I want to think, 50 or 55 tributaries. Like, so this is outside of the main river and um, probably two thirds of those had red eye bass in them. Same thing for the uh, Coosa River system, except there's a lot more. And I mean, there, so Alabama, it, I think it's worth mentioning, is just, it is a water and river and stream state. If you look at a map of Alabama with all the river systems, I mean, there there's... I can't remember. I think the figure is like 178,000 miles of streams or something like that. It's one of the most just robust river and stream states in the in the country, and coupled with an unmatched aquatic biodiversity. So it's not just the fish, you know, the crayfish, the aquatic insects, the um, mussel species, the turtles. I mean, it's it's just off the charts, um, and so it's it's more diverse than you know, Brazilian rainforest in some instances. So it's it's a really cool place. And, and so there's certainly streams that I have not ever set foot in that I know have red-eye bass because, you know, I, I have my favorites that I like to go to and two small kids and, you know, wife and job. And it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to get away all the time. And so I'm not always in for the challenge of exploring a new stream. I want to go for the sure thing, the stream that I know like the back of my hand because I get more out of that sometimes. But then the other times I'm in an exploration you know, mode and I'm like, all right, well, let's just go see if this has red eye. It may turn into my favorite stream. you know. So there, there's so much to keep you busy and you'll never do all of it. So I think that's another really unique aspect to this type of fishing. Is it popular? Like, do, are you seeing a lot of people out there when you're out fishing for them or is it still kind of a relatively unknown fishery? Um, it's, it's certainly gotten more popular over the last, you know, five years. I'm sure my book had something to do with that. A lot of the social media presence we've done around this has, has, you know, increased that, um, podcast, you know, I mean, like there's always a double-edged sword, um, when you try to, you know, raise awareness for a certain species that many people don't know exist versus just completely overloading a spot or, you know, causing fish to be overpressured. And I think that there's, I've thought about this a lot and I've talked to a lot of people about this because I I constantly reevaluate, like, what am I doing? Am I, I have to ask myself, am I chasing notoriety because like I'm the guy that's like putting red eye bass on the map or am I really doing this for the fish? And so far I can always say I'm, I'm still doing it for the fish because I'm more interested in, in them getting the attention that they deserve so that hopefully they'll get the funding that they deserve to be able to, to learn more about them. And it's just, it's the way our, our system works. I mean, the, you know, state, state budgets and federal budgets are, you know, shoestring type budgets. And so most of the money goes to what most of the people are using. And, and this is just something that's totally fallen under the radar. 
and we do know there's some serious conservation concerns. So I'd rather, you know, increase the pressure a little bit and get more people involved in fly fishing or not just fly fishing, but warm water fly fishing. You know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a sect of people that really like, I'd rather fish warm water than cold water. Like that's personally what I want to do. And you look at what the companies market towards, it's mostly cold water stuff. And it's like, well, there's people out here that like, we don't fish for bass when the trout fishing gets, you know, when those trout streams are too warm to fish. Like we, we prefer the warm water and I hardly ever fish for trout. And, and so I think there's, it's bringing a lot of attention. You know, it's almost like a little a mascot for warm water fly fishing and, and, and how unique it can be. And so I, I think it's been good and, and very similar to brook trout. Like I keep going back to, you know, these places aren't easy to get to. And, and not many people are going to go through that kind of effort to get to a fish that, you know, averages around eight or nine inches. Like, like what's the point? You know, like if you're wanting to fish for food, you're going to go catch big catfish or some of those bigger bass. And so I think some of those factors, uh, you know, kind of help protect the resource, you know, kind of built in protection. And so as, as long as I feel like we're growing things in a positive way, we're, we're really coupling the um the excitement and the the coolness factor of fishing for these fish with hey these are really special and they have some serious conservation concerns you know so we're kind of we're coupling that education and awareness with the the experience of going after them with a fly rod and I, i think it's been very positive so most of the people that have been turned on to it and there certainly has been a lot of growth over the last five years are anglers that are mindful of the resource and appreciate the resource and you just see that in fly fishing a lot anyway i think we're we're just kind of geared fly fishers are just kind of geared to be um more plugged into the ecosystems that they fish in because you, you have to 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 catch fish with a fly rod typically yeah, I agree. I think what you're describing attracts the right kind of person generally. And I've, I guess I'm not here to be the you know morality police, but uh, somebody who's willing to work that hard to go after such a small fish is, is likely out there for a lot more than just catching as many fish as they can and throwing them in a bucket. Like they're, they're out there for the experience. And so I think this fish seems to naturally lend itself toward attracting people who would want to help it and protect it and aren't out there to just abuse the resource for the sake of it. It almost sounds like a gateway drug from like, I started with trout and you know, I'm trying to dabble a little bit in warm water or whatever. I like fishing for anything in in any type of water, but I could see that being a good gateway drug for, for trout snobs who want to maybe give warm water fishing a try, but don't want to just go down to the pond in the mud and uh, still want to have that feeling of being in the mountains a little bit and getting out into the remote areas. Yeah. I mean, it really is kind of like a, I mean, it's just, I, I still, I don't take people very often, you know, um, personally, I don't guide or anything like that, but occasionally I'll take, you know, I've met friends through, through fly fishing that, you know, um, we, we met, out of a mutual appreciation for native fish and native places and um, just, you know, start talking, you realize, Hey, we're really kind of similar. I feel like I can, feel like I can take you into the, you know, the, the high church of red eye bass fishing. now. <laughs> and so I've taken some people and, and just to experience what I experience all the time through their eyes is really rewarding because for me, I'm still like a kid. Every time I catch one, I'm just like, I can't believe I'm doing this. You know, I'm in the middle of the woods and, no one's there to to hear me or see me, and you know I've caught some what would be considered really nice red eye bass in some of those places, and like I'm sure I probably screamed and was just like whoa, and like, like <laughs> no one heard that, no one saw that, and I, I think I've enjoyed having more people to share that with, um, because obviously we like to share the things we care about, and so that's kind of what I've been going by is you know people can only love what they understand, and they won't understand it if you don't tell them about it and so it's just a very simple way that i've tried to go about raising awareness for these fish but also um using them as as a driver for like watershed level conservation you know the head the head streams headwaters are really important because everything flows downstream and so if we're if you know they're kind of like a canary in a coal mine so if we're doing things that are that are affecting these fish that's something we should probably worry about because you know that's our drinking water we drink water out of these streams that's where it comes from and i think people are just so far removed from that that sometimes it doesn't register so it's it's been a 
it's been a, a great species to kind of champion a lot of different things. Fly fishing, warm water fly fishing. I mean, Alabama is not a state you think of when you think of fly fishing. And, and this fish and the pursuit of this fish is really, in the community around like-minded people, has really grown the fly fishing community in Alabama. And so now you have a lot more guides that have drift boats that are fishing these, you know, rocky, fast water streams because drift boats work really well for that. And we're just catching bass instead of trout. And it's just, it's been really cool to see how, I mean, fly fishing really has just kind of exploded here. Um, and I think it's, it's going to continue to do so. So it's been fun to, to watch. Well, just to wrap up, um, where can people find any of your work? I know you mentioned a book and you've got social media and website and all that. So where, where can people find you? So redeyebassflyfishing.com is my website. So people can contact me through there. It also has links to, you know, social media stuff, Instagram, um, things like that. You can also learn more about Red Eye Bass on the website. I kind of have it broken down into different aspects you can learn about and also see some of the some of the stuff that we've done in the conservation space and kind of raising awareness for those species. Um, and so that's probably the the best way is through the website. Okay. Perfect. Well, Matt, you got me all excited about maybe coming to Alabama sometime and, and trying to fish for these because, uh, like I said, it just sounds like the the trout fisherman's bass, I guess. And, and yeah, I like is. bass and I like trout, but it sounds like the perfect combination of both. So, yeah, you've got me really excited about them. Yeah, you'll have to come check them out. Awesome. Well, I will let you get on with your night, but um, I appreciate you taking the time for this and appreciate the work you're doing for Native Fish. Well, thanks for having me on. All right, that's a wrap. Uh, Thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. You'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me. And you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, If you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, But otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody. want to succeed you want to fish you want to be one of the greatest tune in to west marines life on the water presented by costa custom boats every saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv spend your saturdays with life on the water join captain brandon simmons for fishing diving travel and so much more you want to succeed you want to fish you want to be one of the greatest oh look at that thing dude (laughs) let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today don't miss life on the water every saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv (laughs) the destination for outdoor entertainment